good in their seat. If you haven't looked up at the screen, I think most of you have. I, I saw, I've been looking for an article on this for a while because I had heard about two or three hours ago that this was the case, but it was unconfirmed. And then uh, just as I was loading everything up when I got here, I saw that the Drudge Report headlined this and had the link. This is a New York Post article describing uh, that the fact that the shooter was lining the people up and asking them, of course, news media was reporting earlier, they were, he was asking them about their religion, but he was asking them if they were a Christian according to this article. And if they said yes, he shot them in the head. And if he said no, he shot them in the leg. And uh, the casualty rate that I saw reported just before I came up here downgraded the fatalities to from 13 to 10, and that may change because it seems like the, the uh, information is being managed uh, a lot by the by the news media, which causes me to suspect uh, a number of things. So, be interesting to see what happens. But this is the New York Post article, and it's based on. The tweets that came out from a woman who claimed that her grandmother was in the class. Apparently, this is a school that primarily retrains uh, older people for t- for different jobs, and that. So anyway, that's uh, that brings us up to date on current events for today. So we see that it's uh, in my cynical manner. My comment was, well, I guess now it's open season on Christians. The only good Christians are dead Christian. Never thought we'd see this in our country where people would be targeting Christians and shooting them. But we probably will see a lot worse before our days are over. But God's in control, and that gives us hope and confidence, and we can have happiness, and that's what we've been studying in First Peter. So so it fits with, with the topic. Now, just a reminder, next Thursday night... We will not be having Bible class here. We will be meeting at one of three locations for the the film Finding Noah. That starts at 7 o'clock. We'll try to get everybody there by at least a quarter till, and we can go in and see the film. Randy sent me an email the other day and said, make sure everybody understands that at the end of the film there's an additional 30-minute panel discussion with a lot of the people that were uh, involved on these trips, and they're going to be uh, they're going to be talking. So don't when it, the film ends, don't think you're ready to get up and leave right away. That's next Thursday night. Also, we need to continue to pray for Doug Harn and Jeff Phipps as they prepare to go to Brazil, which is in another also a couple of weeks. It's a week from next Monday they leave to go down there on the 12th Columbus Day, so they'll go discover South America like Columbus did, and then. Um, Church Picnic on October 24th, and there is a handout. I have one up here. I guess there's some posted around. I saw some back where Jeff, one copy of the announcement and a map. Uh, So those are around somewhere, and it says to remember to bring chairs and bug spray. So that's information on that. And then also the two-day conference on answering Islam that will be held at Sugar Lane Bible Church on November 7th to 8th, and you can go to their website and find out the times. I think it starts at 1.30 on that Saturday afternoon. I'm sure somebody here probably knows. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Holy Spirit, prepared to study the word this evening. Let's pray. Father, this evening we are all quite stunned by what has happened in Oregon, especially the, if these reports that are come, now coming out in the news are actually true that the, this gunman was targeting Christians. We know that things are shifting so rapidly in this culture, and there are many in this nation who are very hateful towards Christians. But Father, we know that as we may face persecution, which is the topic of First Peter, that we have you to comfort us and strengthen us, and that these are opportunities that we have to really demonstrate uh, the reality of Jesus Christ in our life, the, our walk by the Spirit. And, Father, we pray for comfort, that you would comfort those family members of these who were shot, these who were killed. We pray for the situation there in Oregon, that it would be a tremendous opportunity to be a witness for the grace of the gospel and for forgiveness and that you would be working in and through those families and others around the country, pastors and Christian leaders, to focus upon uh, the spiritual issues of this situation and that this might be turned in many, many cases to bring people to a saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray for our nation that so readily wants to disarm its citizens rather than recognizing that if there had only been uh, armed uh, citizens there, this could have been stopped when it got started. Father, we pray for us that we might be faithful as believers, that no matter what happens, we might turn to you, and that our immediate response would be to turn to you and to trust you. And, uh, Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word, we might be challenged by how we are to think and live to glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our study in First Peter, pointing out similarities between First Peter uh, 1, 6 through 9, and James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Both of these epistles are written, interestingly enough, to Jewish background believers, Jewish believers in Jesus as the Messiah. James, as I pointed out last week, was probably written very early in the church age. I believe it was the first epistle to be written uh, before you really had the breakout of a Gentile 
uh, Gentile-based church, probably sometime around 42-43 uh, A.D. Peter, on the other hand, was written much later, probably uh, because Peter's well aware of Paul's writings. He's well aware of the inclusion of Gentiles and Jews together in the body of Christ. He's the apostle that opened the door to Gentiles. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, as we're told, as he took the gospel uh, to the household of Cornelius. So this epistle, though it is written specifically, as James is, to Jewish background believers, is written in the church age for church age believers. And even though the initial environment, the initial circumstances that uh, surround the writing of the epistle have to do with Jewish background believers. Nevertheless, the principles here apply equally uh, to all believers. And so he is reiterating the same principle as James, which is that our faith is tested, that the Lord allows our faith to be tested, and that means to be evaluated, to be examined. And this happens in a lot of different ways. It happens to us every day, many, many different times, and testing uh, that comes, parasmos, the word, the Greek word that refers to testing, sometimes it refers to temptation, is a word that, that basically indicates an opportunity to make a decision, uh, whether you're going to apply the word or not apply, uh, apply the word. As we look at this section, it's important to understand again that we find words that we generally want to think of in terms of initial salvation, phase one. What we describe as justification takes place at a point in time. A person responds by believing in Jesus Christ as Savior, that Jesus, understanding that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ alone paid the penalty for all sins on the cross. There's no sin that he did not pay for. Uh, he solved the sin problem because the fundamental cause of sin is what? Fundamental cause of sin was Adam's original sin. So we're all condemned not for personal sins. We're condemned for Adam's original sin. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for that, and, he paid, and thus he paid the penalty for all sin. I think the, the fact that he paid for all sins flows logically out of the fact that he paid for Adam's original sin, and that took care of everything. But that doesn't save anybody. Because as I've pointed out many times, there's three basic problems. We have a judicial sin penalty, which is spiritual death, uh, that is uh, imputed to every single human being except for Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're still experientially dead. We're born spiritually dead, and we lack perfect righteousness. And so Jesus Christ just took care of the first part, that is, he paid the judicial penalty, but experientially we're still born spiritually dead, as Ephesians chapter 2 verses uh, 1, uh, verse 1 says, and Colossians 2, 12 to 14 express, we're born dead in our trespasses and sins, we're born spiritually dead but physically alive, so that has to be taken care of, that happens when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are made regenerate. We are born again. And then uh, the final thing is that we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness at that point. So Christ paying the penalty for all sin doesn't make people savable. I mean, the classic construction of this is it either makes people savable or his death automatically saves people. That's a doctrine of limited atonement. It pays the penalty for sin so that they can make a decision to trust in Christ or not. 
That's phase one, because we get into this when we get down into verse 9, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That really sounds like that's talking about justification and the final realization of our salvation and glorification. But as we'll see, that's not the lang- how the language is used there. It's really used in phase two to talk about deliverance from trials in our spiritual life. Many times the word souls simply refers to lives, a person's life, that when, when a ship goes down, for example, I use the illustration of the Titanic, uh, when the Titanic went down, so many souls were lost. Uh, that is an idiom uh, for lives. So we have one sentence here. This is a packed sentence. It's not as long as some of Paul's sentences, but I like to review it. Peter is saying, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness, that is the the quality, the, the uh, evaluation of your faith, being much more precious than gold, it perishes, though it is tested or evaluated. It's the noun there, uh, as we see here in this slide, the word genuineness is dokimazo, the verb, and the noun here tested is uh, excuse me, this is the noun dakimion, and this is the verb dakimadzo, same root, so it has to do with exposing the quality of something. Uh, it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation or the deliver that is the deliverance of your life. And that's how, that's what this is talking about. I pointed out last time the similarities between 1 Peter and James. The words circled are all words that you find in James 1, 2 through 4. Now this is great because so many believers have struggle with suffering, struggle with adversity, struggle with the difficulties of living in the devil's world. And what Peter tells us is the reality for every believer is to expect that they should rejoice in the midst of the present fiery trials because of our knowledge of the Word. So it comes down to knowing the Word of God, letting that infiltrate your soul, and our love for Christ, which enables us to look to a future deliverance in this life. We're not going to be in that trial forever as well as the glories to come. So the great thing about this is, is, is the way a lot of us have read this initially is a recognition that, well, we're in this for a short time in this life, and then we'll be in heaven. But the deliverance that's spoken of here is that the, the difficulties are not going to last forever. Now, I know that in some cases they are difficult. We face health issues perhaps, that we are born with, or, or that something that happens. I know that my mother had polio when she was about 26 or 27 years old, and so she was in a wheelchair, dealt with that for the rest of her life. Uh, those are difficulties, but for the most part, things will change. The circumstances change, difficulties shift. Uh, we go through times of testing with one thing, and then later on, uh, we move through that or we look back at it and we go, that wasn't as bad as I thought because God is teaching us and God is training us. So in 1 Peter 1.6, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice, and as I pointed out, this looks back 
to understanding verses 3 through 5, from regeneration to rewards, we understand the plan of God. He's regenerated us. He's taking us to an eventual inheritance in heaven. And because we understand that, that, that framework, that plan, we can rejoice. Even though, for now, we are... Uh, suffering, we're grieving by various trials. And I point this out, and I did last time, that when we uh, live the Christian life, too often people get the idea, just like you hear a lot of uh, non-Christians and unbelievers say, well, look at that Christian, he sinned. They just don't understand that the essence of Christianity isn't that we are perfect or that we become perfect. The essence of Christianity is that we are forgiven on the basis of the possession of Christ's righteousness simply because we trust in him. It doesn't guarantee that we're a nicer person, that we're less obnoxious, that we are always wonderful, that we never fail, and that we never sin. In fact, most Christians still sin egregiously, uh, but they may not be overt. It may be a result of various mental attitude sins. So we go through life, and we still grieve. We still have sorrows. We still have sadness. We still struggle with things. But uh, even though we do, we can still have maximum joy. These are not two different things because our emotions may change due to circumstances, but the joy that we are given in Christ is a mental attitude joy that involves stability tranquility, and a real excitement about our life because we understand how it fits within God's plan. Jesus experienced sorrow and deep distress in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, yet he never sinned. He never lost his joy. He always shared the perfect happiness with Christ. Peter, uh, Paul, as I said in First that's 4.13, says that when someone dies, we sorrow, but not like those who have no hope. So we do sorrow. And we go through various trials. And when I ended last time, I pointed this out, that in both James 1.2 and in 1 Peter 1.6, the same term is used. The Greek reverses the word order, but it basically it, it means the exact same thing. Polkilois is the word for uh, variegated or different or various, and it's a word from which we get uh, our English polka dot, but it means many different kinds of trials and tests. And the purpose for that is to evaluate our faith. It's the purpose that comes up. So back in James 1, you can just turn back a couple of pages if you want to look at James 1.3. James 1 brings out something that is... Uh, that is the focal point of one seven. One seven gives us the purpose. It begins in the Greek with a purpose clause. So here we learn the purpose for going through these various trials. It's not just random. It's not the idea that there's just this random, impersonal, immaterial universe and things just happen totally outside of anybody's control. And life is rather meaningless. Uh, what this is saying is that what we go through is designed by God. There's a purpose in how God allows us to go through suffering. If we read through the book of Job, Job was a patriarch of the Old Testament. 
He wasn't Jewish. He lived about the same time as Abraham and Isaac, somewhere around 2000 B.C., and he lost everything dear to him. He's lost his seven sons and three daughters. He lost his 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 uh, the home that they lived in. He lost cattle. Uh, the uh, raiders came and stole everything that he had. He lost everything but his wife, who really didn't seem to be like much of a treasure because her advice to Job was just curse God and die. So she wasn't uh, actually very pleasant in this whole story. So that's all that God leaves him with. And uh, three friends who basically have human viewpoint and keep saying, if you ha- if this all these bad things happen to you, it's your own fault. And finally, uh, Job begins to succumb to their human viewpoint, and he says, I just want to be able to stand and talk to my creator. He and God have a little conversation that's recorded in Job 38, uh, 38, 39, and 40, where God basically says, now if you just look around and examine the details of the creation around you, you'll discover that you don't have a clue what's really going on. Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Uh, where were you when uh, this happened or that happened? All referring to things related to creation, the creation of different animals. And God just pointing out that, that Job has an infinitesimal knowledge about life and about creation, about the world, and that he couldn't possibly understand God's plans and purposes in his life because he lacks omniscience. And so God says, you have to learn to just trust me. And that goes back to a previous statement that Job had made regarding faith where he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And that's where God wants us to understand that no matter what happens, we trust him, and because we trust him, we're going to have joy. So when we look at 1 Peter 1.7 and we talk about the purpose clause, why does God take us through these various trials? So that he can demonstrate something about our faith. Now, we'll come back to that. But the idea of faith that we see in the scriptures uh, here talks about the content of our faith, not just the act of believing. People say, just believe. No, the Bible says, believe the promises of God. It's what we believe. This is what James talks about in in James 1.3. The issue in testing is going to come down to what you know. Whenever I go through testing, I, you know, the issue is always, well, why didn't I use what I know? Why didn't I pay attention to what I know? I know I shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't respond that way. I know I shouldn't think like that. It comes down to operating on what we know. So in James 1, 3, James 1, 2 says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, how can you count it joy? And then the first ver the first word in verse three is this word knowing. Now in English that's kind of ambiguous. How exactly does the word knowing relate back to the main command, which is to count it joy? Now in Greek it's a little more precise, but it it's not objective. You have to think through various options. The word there Translated knowing is a verb for to know, to come to know something, to recognize something is true. It's the verb gnosko, but it's a participle. And participle, we're going to talk a lot about participles because First Peter's loaded with participles. Participles can either 
function like a noun or they can function like a verb. So we're going to forget about the noun part tonight. We're going to focus on how they function like a verb. They're called adverbial participles. And remember, a ver- an adverb says something, further defines the action of the verb. So what happens in an adverbial participle is it says something related to the action of the verb. It may tell us uh, what the cause is. So you have causal participles. And you may have it a, a participle of means. It's telling you how to do something. Uh, so it's translated by means of, and it's an instrumental participle. Sometimes it has to do with time. So it talks about when or after. There's about 10 different categories of adverbial participles. And when I'm teaching uh, pastors Greek, I say what you do is you go through and you sort of of do a process of elimination and say, well, that won't work. It's clearly not manner. It's clearly not time. It could be cause, possibly. Oh, means really works and opens up the passage. And so you just work it through with the process of elimination. Well, in this case... uh, we count it all joy, not by knowing, but because we know something. It clarifies it. It's a causal participle. How are you able to count it joy? Because you know something. You have knowledge of the Word of God, knowledge of doctrine in your soul, and you know a principle. You know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That may be all you can grab hold of in your mind when you go through a difficult time. God's testing me, and the purpose of this testing is to develop endurance, steadfastness in the Christian life. Think of a sports metaphor. You get somebody who's trying out for sports, whether it's tennis or whether it's football or whether it's soccer, it gets tough. It's physically demanding in just about any sport. And there are days when you come home, you say, I'm hot, I'm sweaty, I just don't want to do it anymore, I just want to quit. Well, you're never going to become good at it. You're you're never going to excel at it unless you stick with it, unless you endure. You take the same thing of some some recruit who's just gone into the military. He goes um, goes to basic training. And he goes through, uh, uh, get, gets introduced to a culture that he's never seen before in his life. And he's got this guy, I, I, I don't know if drill sergeants still yell at them or not. I hear rumors that they don't. But, but he's got somebody telling him what to do, waking him up at 4 o'clock in the morning and, and having him scrub out toilets and other things that he's never had to do before. And he's having to learn things. And he wants to quit after a while because he'd rather go back home and be a couch potato and not do anything. But if he's going to excel, if he's going to do well, he has to submit to authority and he has to stick with it. He has to endure. Endurance is uh, is critical in any area of life. If you're an unbeliever and you want to excel in anything and do well in life, you have to endure. But if you're a believer, it takes it from the realm of of just everyday human viewpoint principle that applies to everybody to a spiritual principle. That endurance, which is the Greek word hupomone, that second part is is mone, that's from the word abiding. Uh, Meno is the Greek verb, and it means to abide. Jesus says, if you're going to bear much fruit, you have to abide in me. And hupo just adds a prefix of, of intensity to it, 
to stay or to remain under or in the situation. So the testing of your faith here, uh, the knowledge is necessary to be able to endure. It's not without knowledge. You have to understand and know some things. And so this is what what Peter says. And uh, I'm going to go back to the James 3. Because you know that the testing of your faith... Now, I know I've got this on a slide, but I'm not sure where it is. Faith can either refer to the act of believing, where it's a noun that describes an action. The action is believing. Or it can refer to the content of faith. It can refer to what you're believing. What faith are you? This shooter in Oregon, essentially what he was asking was, what faith are you? And if you answered Christian, then he shot you. So the issue is the content of your belief. And that's what James is is saying here, is that the content of your faith is being tested. Because if you don't have any content, if you don't know anything about the Bible, you're going to fail the test. So God is evaluating, exposing the content of doctrine that's in your soul and the value that it has in your life. James is going to talk about that later on when he says, if a man has has uh, has faith but no works, is that faith any value to him? And he says, no, it doesn't mean he doesn't have it. It's just that it's a has been reduced to just an academic faith that has no uh, application in terms of his day-to-day life. So James is saying here, because you know that, that God is going to test or evaluate the doctrine that's in your soul. He's going to expose what's there. James is talking about, I mean, Peter's talking about the same thing, the genuineness of your faith, and it's going to be tested by fire. And it's the same words that are used over here for testing in James 1-3, or the words that are used here. Uh, dachimion is the, is the noun, the dachimion of your faith, the test, the evaluation. It's the act of evaluating or testing your faith. And then it's tested by fire. That's the verb uh, dachimazo down here. Uh, here I'm going to change the slide over to James, and James is using the the verb there for testing in dakimazo. So he's testing faith. There's that slide. Testing faith, identifying the act of trusting or believing, or it can refer to the content of what is believed. The Lord wants to evaluate and expose what you've got in your soul and whether it's profitable to you. That's what James will bring out when he gets into chapter 2. And it produces endurance. There's the word hupomane, and it means to keep on doing it. I have a CrossFit coach who likes to say, keep working, you can rest later. And first time I heard that, that's a great motto for the Christian life. Keep at it. What do we call what what is the writer of Hebrews called the millennium? It's our rest. Keep working, you can rest later. That's a great motto for the Christian life. So keep on doing, keep on enduring, you can rest later. Hundred thousand years from now you're gonna not even remember this life. So we, it's going to be evaluated. There's going to be an evaluation. And the evaluation today through the things that we go through is really a foreshadowing and is preparation for an evaluation that's going to occur at the judgment seat of Christ. 
2 uh, Corinthians 5 talks about the fact that we're going to appear before the Bema seat. That's, the Bema was just a raised platform on which the judge would sit. They, you, you go to Colosseums from the ancient world, there was always raised seats, a special kind of bench where the judges sat. And um, in fact, in, in uh, Judaism, if you go to a synagogue, the place where the rabbi sit up front is referred to as the Bema. And so we, this, that would be an appropriate term for what's up here, uh, in front, in the pulpit is this is a bema. It is just a raised platform, uh, from which a speaker speaks or a judge evaluates. So this evaluation of our faith, the word, uh, shows up in a very important passage. So I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And this is one of the two key passages on the judgment seat of Christ. So turn over to 1 Corinthians 3. If you're taking notes, and you should be, you ought to be underlining the word testing here uh, in in James 1.3, indicating that as dokimazo, and putting a note in your margin to take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to begin in... In verse, verse 10. We'll begin in verse 10. Now, 1 Corinthians 3 is an important passage because Paul comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talking about the fact that there's believers and unbelievers, and unbelievers are called natural men, believers are spiritual. But when he then shifts and begins to talk about believers, he indicates that there's two different kinds of believers. There are believers that are operating uh, on the Holy Spirit, and Romans chapter 8 uses the term according to the Spirit, and uh, Galatians chapter 5 verse 16, he, he uses the term uh, walking by the Spirit, and that these are called spiritual. In contrast, you have Christians who are walking, they, they, he describes it in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 verses 1 through 3, uh, Old King James called it carnal, you have a New American Standard Bible, it probably calls it fleshly. If you've got the New International Wrong Commentary, it translates sarkikos as as worldly. Doesn't worldly is cosmos. It doesn't have anything to do. That's an interpretation, and it's a wrong interpretation. One of the many reasons I'm not real fond of the uh, uh, New International Version. It may be easy to read because it's written at a at a at, at a more basic reading level, which is fine if you're just reading the Bible for content, uh, that's that's fine. That's good. It's easy to read. It's easy to come to understand the basic uh, uh, trends of history within the Bible. But it's not something that I would study by. Even though the study notes in the NIV Study Bible are pretty decent. Uh, they're not as good as some others because Ryrie is a dispensationalist and Schofield was a dispensationalist and, and the uh, Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible is dispensational, but it just deals with prophetic issues. Um, but anyway, so the New King James translates it carnal. And the contrast is two types of believers. You have those who are carnal and those who are babes in Christ. Now, this throws a lot of people off because the word babes in Christ makes them think that he's talking about, about a maturity issue. But the word that's translated babe in Christ is, is an interesting word. It's not the word brephos 
that is the word typically used of an infant. It's the word napios. And napios has a literal meaning that can mean a, a young child, an infant to a baby, but it also has a, it was used a lot with sarcasm. It's a, it's a pejorative term. It's like we turn with some, to somebody who was, let's say, uh, you're speaking to your 11 or 12 year old child who's act, acting like a little brat and you just say, quit acting like a baby. You know, you're not saying they're a literal infant, but they're acting like they, they're totally ignorant and they have no knowledge of anything. That's the word that's used here. Uh, Paul is being, uh, deeply sarcastic and insulting to them. And if we read and understand 1 Corinthians, we realize these are not a godly, mature people. They are people that are characterized by divisions and arrogance and all manner of sexual licentiousness and antinomianism, and they ought to know better because they've been saved, Paul says, for three years, but they're still acting like an ignorant spiritual infant that that doesn't know anything about spirituality. In fact, he goes on to say uh, that they're walking like mere men, and that means you're not acting according to the supernatural endowment or the supernatural provision of God the Holy Spirit. You're walking like a man, a human being apart from the Holy Spirit, and he says that you're producing envy, strife, and divisions, and this is all indicative that it's sin nature control. And he uses the word uh, sarkikos, which is related to sarks of the flesh, which is how Paul talks about in Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 5, that you're walking according to the flesh. So he's setting up this contrast between two different kinds of believers. And some people think, well, I can just uh, let my sin nature go, and all I have to do is confess sin, and I'll be back in fellowship. But the scripture doesn't emphasize the fact that you are to just constantly get back in fellowship. You're to stay in fellowship. That's what Jesus meant when he said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. That's like I use the illustration of a house. When people confess sin, it's like going from outside to inside. Inside is where there's fellowship with God. Inside is where there's a rich relationship with the Holy Spirit. Inside is where fruit is born. Outside is where it's darkness. Inside is where it's light. And a lot of Christians are just going in and out the door. In fact, they're so used to it, they put a revolving door on the front door. And they're just spinning around. But the place where there's real spiritual life and spiritual growth is abiding in Christ, staying in the house, staying in fellowship for more than 20 seconds. That'd be good for some people. Some people, they have to stay in fellowship for three seconds. I'll give you a clue. Turn off Fox News. Turn off talk radio. Then maybe you can stay in fellowship a little bit longer. So you've got these two categories of believers, those who are spiritually growing, spiritually productive because they're walking according to the Spirit, and those that are still spending most of their time spinning around or just not even confessing sin. So there's going to be an end result evaluation, and this is what's described starting in 1 Corinthians 3.10. Paul says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder. So he's using the analogy of a construction project in order to talk about how God is building your life and my life. And the foundation was laid by apostolic truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ 
died on the cross for your sins. So he says, I was, this was the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder. I laid the foundation. The foundation is Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. It's the gospel. That's what builds the house. Christ is the foundation. And uh, so Paul says, I laid, laid the foundation. That means he gave the gospel. You got saved. Someone else came and build, built on it. That's edification, building a structure on the house. That's spiritual growth. Uh, another builds on it. And then he says, but take heed. Watch. Be careful how you build on it. Because there's different kinds of building tools. Some building tools are wood, hay, and straw. They don't have much strength. They won't last long. Others are more substantive and will endure. That's gold, silver, and precious stones. So in verse 12, he says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation, and he lists all the building products, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. But we can't really evaluate that on our own. We can't look at our structure of our of our spiritual growth and decide what's gold and what's just wood, painted like gold. And he says, but each one's work will, future tense, become evident, for the day will declare it. And he uses that term day to refer to the day of judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. See, believers are not judged to determine where they're going to go when they die. Because you're regenerate, when you die, you're absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord instantly. Your body goes into the grave. You receive an interim immaterial body uh, until the Lord reunites you with your resurrection body at the rapture. So after the rapture, there'll be the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, and each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test it. Dakimazo. We're being tested now to expose the value of our faith. This is to prepare us for the eventual and ultimate evaluation when we are evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this isn't a literal fire. He's using an analogy here uh, of a building project. And you build something, but the only thing that has enduring value is that which can can uh, pass the test, that can pass the examination. And so uh, your life will be that which is of eternal value will be exposed by fire uh, in a sense. And just as fire is used to refine uh, precious metals, they are put uh, they are put into fire, which burns off the dross. It burns off the impurities. Uh, the gold is heated up. Silver is heated up. And this purifies the metal. It's, and the what's bad goes away. It's destroyed. At the judgment seat of Christ, the point isn't, well, let's see where you failed. See, where you failed is related to the sin in your life related to disobedience, related to that which was not done by walking according to the Spirit. So God's not focusing on exposing your failures. He wants to expose our successes, our growth, that which has value that will last for eternity. And it's on the basis of that uh, that we will be rewarded. 
Now, there are other factors that will come into rewarding. Rewarding isn't just based on on divine good alone. The wood, hay, and straw is referred to as human good. It's just morality, good things done in our own effort, whereas divine good is that which is produced by God the Holy Spirit. Other things enter in. Perseverance, other things related to the overcomer and revelation enter in as to uh, the different kinds of rewards that are uh, that are passed out, but that's part of a, a different aspect of this doctrine. The fire will evaluate each one's um, each one's work of what sort it is. And then I didn't put verse fourteen on here, but verse fourteen reads: If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, there's that word hupomene from James. And it endures because what? Because we endured in obedience and walking by the Spirit. Remember, the Word of God plus the Spirit of God enables the child of God to be conformed to the character of the Son of God. That's the whole plan of of this Christian life right there. It's the Word of God plus the Spirit of God, not plus Prozac. You know, it's not plus your 12-step group. It's the Word of God plus the Spirit of God enables a child of God to develop the character of the Son of God. So, verse 14 says, that which endures, that which endures, uh, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned... That means if you pile up, build the house, and you strike a match to it, and everything burns up, and there's nothing left, there's nothing rewardable. But he says, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet it's through fire. He's still going to go into heaven. That's that's glorification right there. He will still be glorified. He'll still go into heaven. He'll still have eternal life. He'll still have a resurrection body. He will still be in the kingdom, but he won't have any role or responsibility or privileges because he was a spiritual failure. But he will be in heaven where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, for the old things have passed away. Another way in which this word dokimazo is used is in Romans 12, 2 where we're given the great, I think, the great summary of the ministry of the churches in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. But we're not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the focus of the local church ministry, is to teach the Word of God so that people can have their thinking overhauled, renovated, transformed so that they can live on the basis of divine viewpoint, applying God's word to every problem in their life and thus demonstrate to the angels and the human race that God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. But that word prove is the idea of demonstrating the value of God's will that it's good, acceptable, and perfect. So back to 1 Corinthians 3.14. Oh, excuse me, that wasn't hupomene. It was meno here for endure. Uh, if any anyone's work abides or continues, if anyone's work abides, he will receive a reward. 
reminds us of abiding in Christ. Same word group as hupomene. Okay, now, 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us that no test, no temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. The categories are all the same. Your test in one area will vary a little bit from my test in one area because I believe God sort of tailors these exams for each one of us. Some of us don't go through some kinds of tests because God knows that's an area of strength in our sin nature, uh, and it's not really going to be a problem. But others of us keep going through the same kinds of tests over and over again because because that's where our area of weakness is in our sin nature, and it's really hard for us to learn those lessons. So we go through these tests, but God is faithful. He's the one who gives us the strength, the help, the knowledge to go through it. This is what is known, I emphasize this and I'll continue to emphasize, it's the sufficiency of God's grace, a doctrine that is really not understood anymore. It has fallen on hard times since the post-World War II period. It was falling on hard times before that. But we have so many aids to life today, whether it's whether it's psychology or whether it's medicine or whether it's motivational principles, whether it's reading from Maslow or Freud or Jung, uh, we forget the Bible. And up until uh, the post-World War II, actually, it was a shame and embarrassment until the early 70s if you went, had to go to a psychologist. Uh, because you you had failed. And in Christianity, it was still the understanding up through the 70s that if you went to a psychologist, you'd given up on God. And that was absolutely accurate. And we have to get back to that. And people think that they can make life work without being dependent upon God and letting God the Holy Spirit rip up their sin nature control and teach them to to live on the basis of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. That's the way that God has given us to escape. It's the Word of God so that we can endure it. That's hupomene, so that we can bear it, so that we can continue in and under uh, under the difficulty. used to be that, that up until mid part of the 20th century, that pastors were called the doctors of the soul. Because a, a medical doctor could, fi- could fix what ailed you physically. But if you had problems, mental problems, emotional problems, that was ultimately a spiritual problem. And it was the people who understood the Word of God and the grace of God and the sufficiency of God's grace who could give you the real tools that would give you eternal victory over these problems because ultimately they're grounded in your sin nature. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have consequences in your physiological makeup. They certainly do. But it's a case of what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Uh, scripturally, the chicken came first. Scripturally, the problem comes from our sin nature. If we have to address that problem, and that problem can only be addressed by the Word of God. So, in 1 Peter 1.7, we're tested to expose the quality of our faith. And some of us are looking around, and we go through certain tests, we go, man, my, t- my faith didn't have much quality there. Uh, I know better, but I sure didn't act like I know better. So it's 
it's quality of the faith, and what matters is that faith, the quality of the content. Look at this next phrase. Now, I don't really need to tell this to a lot of you. You're faithful. You come to Bible class Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Thursday night. You listen uh, to, to many lessons online throughout the week. But this is saying that the doctrine in your soul is more valuable than gold, than precious gold, uh, because gold still perishes. But the doctrine in your soul is what will last into eternity. You may be a homeless person with nothing to your name except you may have a great possession of doctrine in your soul. That's what goes on into eternity. That, that's what has value. And unfortunately, it takes a lot of us a long time to realize how valuable doctrine really is to us and that we need to, to as a proverb says, we need to be willing to buy truth and sell it not because that's the only retirement plan that we should be investing in. Well, not the, we got to live through this life, but the retirement plan that goes on after physical death is the one I'm talking about. When we retire from this life and go into eternity, the only thing that we have left in our spiritual 401k plan is the doctrine in our soul. And that's what survives. So that's what we have to pay attention to. So we're going to have joy in this life. We can rejoice because we understand the framework of God's plan, even though at times it may be fairly onerous. And there are times when it was tough for Paul. There were times when it was tough for the Lord Jesus Christ. But they didn't give in to those those uh, external uh, pressures or, in the case of Paul, because he had a sin nature, the internal temptation. The Lord Jesus Christ just had negative external circumstances. And so it's designed ultimately to bring praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, that's the judgment seat of Christ. That's when it is revealed what is gold, silver, and precious stones and what will last on into eternity. And then we get into the next verse. Now, remember, this is all one sentence, and so Paul is going to go on from here that this brings glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, and he's going to bring us back to the fact that our lives need to be Christ-centered and christ Focus. Now, a phrase we use to describe that often is occupation with Christ. We need to have our eyes fixed and focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews 12, 2. So he says in verse 8, whom, referring back to the Jesus Christ mentioned in the previous verse, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet by believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, there's a lot packed into this verse. He starts off talking about that the focus is on Jesus Christ, and we haven't seen him. The generations that came after the disciples did not have that one-on-one appearance with the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't see him. And the Lord told Thomas, Blessed are you for recognizing this, but there'll be a greater blessing for those who believe without being able to physically touch the scars, physically touch the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we love him on the basis of somebody else's testimony. None of us have had a direct encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
not the living Word of God, only the written Word of God. We have the testimony of the disciples. We have the testimony of the apostles, of Paul. And we fall in love with the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the focus of the Scriptures. And so he becomes the one that we're occupied with. Now, when we when we start with this, uh, the phrase, having not seen, is a participle. And it's what's called a concessive participle, which means it's stating something that, that expresses a circumstance that might be expected to preclude the action of the main clause. Well, let me tell you what that means. Loving somebody is usually based on having a personal experiential relationship with them. We see them. We talk to them. We spend time physically with them. And so in, in a concessive clause, you're expressing the, the fact that there's this, there's this circumstance that would seem to negate being able to love him. We've never seen him. And so it's expressed that way, though, although, or despite the fact that you've never seen him, you love him. Why? Because you understand his role in salvation and what he has provided for us. And the verb there means to to look at him, to focus upon him. Not blepo, which means just to glance at him, but it has to do with perceiving him, focusing on him. It's the same word that's repeated again in the next phrase, and it's another concessive participle. But notice there's a difference. Whom having not seen, that's an aorist or a past tense participle. Now, present tense, you though you do not see him, yet now you are believing. And I put that uh, bracket in there with the word by because this expresses the next verbal there, which is the word believing, which is another participle. But this is a participle of mean. So we've looked at a causal participle tonight because you know something. We've looked at a concessive participle, though you do not see him. Uh, and, and now we're looking at a participle of means. The way that we rejoice with joy is on the means of believing. So the believing, which we sometimes refer to as a faith rest drill, the believing is the means by which we are able to have joy, rich joy, exalted joy, in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's why I love participles. Participles, by breaking them out like this, give us the specifics of the action. That's where the application comes from, is by understanding what these participles mean, and, and unfortunately they're not always talked about in messages or sermons to help break open the meaning of a passage. So, though you've never seen Jesus in the past, you love him. You learned about him through the word. Though now you uh, don't see him, present tense, you still don't see him, yet by believing, how do you activate this? What's the foundation for the love and the joy? It's believing in him. That's the faith rest drill. So I've inserted that by way of bracket to understand that. And as a result of learning to believe faith rest drill day in, day out, then you can exalt. You can be excited. You can have rich joy no matter how bad it is. You you can be like Thomas Cramner uh, being burned at the stake 
holding his hand out in the flames to be burned off because that's the hand that signed uh, his recantation of faith, and he is, he, he is casting it aside because his hand has betrayed him, and at the same time he's singing hymns to the glory of God. Now, that's grace in action. That's the grace of God enabling him to do that. He's got joy in the midst of a horrible trial, a horrible test, but that's because it's this joy, as I pointed out, is not a natural happiness. It's the joy that's the result of walking by the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just wrap this, this up before we come back and look at some details in a couple of weeks. It's by believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible. And then we have another participle, receiving the end of your faith. Now, what, how is this word receiving related to, to, to the verbs that have gone on before? And I think that it's, it's when. See, it, it should be understood, yet, yet by believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible when you receive the end of your faith. Now, this word end of your faith uh, is then described as a salvation of your soul. So in this slide, I've got a parallel from James 1.21, uses that same phrase, save your souls. It means saving or delivering your life from a test, from a trial, from a difficulty. It doesn't mean getting into heaven. It's talking about how you deliver your life from a, a situation that seems to be overwhelming and seems that you're never going to get out from under it, and it seems like the best way out is maybe committing suicide. Just end it all, and then I'm face-to-face with the Lord. And I've known some Christians who've, who've done that, and they've, just, they've been under such pain and misery that they said, I'm just going to check out on my own because I, I want to go ahead and get to heaven. And here he says, when you receive the end of your faith, the end result of your faith rest drill, then your life will be delivered. And this is the idea there. And so, uh, as I've put it on this slide, by believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible when you receive the end result of your faith. So we go through life, we go through a horrible situation of testing, we come out the other end, and when we come out the other end, and we've been trusting the Lord, trusting the Lord, trusting the Lord, finally, we made it out the other end. We can rejoice with joy inexpressible when we receive the end result of our faith. We see that in, in this life, not waiting until the judgment seat of Christ or when we're in heaven, but in this life when our life is is delivered. So... That brings us to a point where we need to do some summary and we need to focus on uh, some of the other aspects of this uh, section just to tie it together in terms of application. And we'll come back and do that uh, in a couple of weeks because next week, remember, we will all be going to uh, see Finding Noah. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded that you have, as part of this plan that takes us from regeneration to rewards, you have a plan that includes refining us, it includes evaluating our faith, it includes taking us through a series of procedures that are going to expose the immaturity, the self-reliance, the human viewpoint, so that we can replace that with dependence upon you that we can move from immaturity to maturity and so that at the judgment seat of Christ we will have 
gold, silver, and precious stones, that which will glorify and honor you because of what you have done in our lives uh, in this life. And we pray that you would challenge us with the need, the vital need, to know your word, to apply your word, to drill ourselves in your word, that we might uh, apply it consistently in difficult times, that, that, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.